that rose field a dark tower stands Oh, there must be a sacrifice gone slanging man Oh, in a red rose field a dark tower stands Oh, there must be a sacrifice gone slinging man Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Today, well, uh, today's a big one, everybody. Uh, today is one that I, I both couldn't wait to jump into and one I was terrified of touching again. Today, we review 1982's Genre-bending, blood-stained, existential cowboy western sci-fi horror fantasy epic, the first entry in a monumental series that spanned 22 years of publication, included seven novels, numerous tie-ins, 4,540 pages, and for me, hours of entertainment, years of anticipation, and an engagement with a text that I have rarely enjoyed before or since. Today, on the Stephen King cast, Constant Reader will discuss book one of The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger. I'm going to be honest here. I, uh, I was incredibly intimidated to get back into this. The Dark Tower has meant so much to me throughout the years, and I've held many conversations about it with a lot of different people. I still own my beat-up uh, paperback copy of The Gunslinger that I first read in the spring of my sixth grade year, and each book followed soon after. When I first started reading um, King, The Wastelands had, had just come out uh, soon before, and the much-teased Wizard in Glass seemed like a lifetime away. Today, I mean, we live in a world where everything comes at such a fast pace. I mean, we consume our media and binges. Information is refreshed and recycled like every 30 seconds. Franchise movies are guaranteed every two to three years, and that seems like forever to wait. You know, I don't know if I'll ever experience a sensation of having to wait the way that I had to with each installment of The Dark Tower. This series made me a critical reader. It certainly encouraged my obsessive qualities, that's for sure. I mean, this was before the internet, and I didn't have a Wikipedia to point out all of the connections between The Dark Tower and his other novels. There wasn't a guide to map out the sometimes contradictory backstory of Roland himself, or how to make sense of the literally shifting landscape of Midworld. The only thing I had were the words of Stephen King and my own imagination to make sense of it all. In short, the Dark Tower series became my own Dark Tower, a quest that consumed my life for well over a decade. I began reading it not much older than Jake himself, and my subsequent rereadings have shaped and reshaped my feelings of the text and my feelings on the characters within. For a long time, the Dark Tower was a constant in my life, and I owe Stephen King a great deal of gratitude for the countless hours of enjoyment. Now, not all of it was enjoyment, but even that is a testament to King's ability, because when he wants you to cry, goddammit, he's able to do just that. Taken as a whole, the Dark Tower saga is the most written about of Stephen King's works, but it also happens to be his most esoteric. Despite its fervent van base, it's one of his least read. If you pull a person on the street to ask a list of Stephen King's stories, they'll probably be able to tell you Carrie, The Shining, Pet Cemetery, It, Shawshank Redemption, Misery. And maybe, just maybe, they've heard of the Dark Tower. Maybe. 
you're less likely to run into a Dark Tower fan on the street. Now, with that said, the Dark Tower fan base is an active one and has members all over the world, including those in the movie world like Ron Howard and Brian Glazer, who currently own the film rights to the franchise and have been attempting to get it up and running for years. Fan casting has raged ever since. Who should play Roland? Who should play Jake? The Man in Black? How should it be filmed? As a movie? As a television series? Both? The story has its fans in the comic book world as well. In 2007, three years after the conclusion of The Dark Tower, Marvel Comics launched The Gunslinger Born, a look at the origins of Roland, the last gunslinger, in a time before the world moved on. As of this episode, there are currently seven collections of The Dark Tower comic book series, and series currently in publication that depicts the events of the saga's second novel, The Drawing of the Three. The series has inspired creative thinkers in the entertainment industry, artists, and musicians as evidence from this very own episode. The music that introduced today's podcast is a song entitled Jake and the Gunslinger from the band Bright Giant. Now you can find more of Bright Giant on Amazon, and be sure to check out their page, www.brightgiant.com, and like them on Facebook. Now look, any band that is inspired enough by the Dark Tower to write a song about its two main characters is a band worth checking out. And as Stephen King fans, I think that's important for us to support each other. So, Bright Giant, go check them out. The series has held such a strong grasp on our imaginations as well as the imagination of Stephen King himself, so much that the Tower still occupies a place within his mind, inspiring him to revisit the concluded franchise with a flashback novel, The Wind Through the Keyhole, in 2012. Eventually, when Stephen King moves on to the next world, historians will categorize his career. Many, many words will be written about his works, specifically, I assume, about Carrie, for it being its first. Whatever his last may be, it, for its significance as a turning point in his career, but mostly, I assume, will be about the Dark Tower. I've spoken at great length about how King is referred to as a horror novelist and how I disagree with this statement. Again, I believe that such a term doesn't do him justice. As I've done before, I just want to take a look at the novels leading up to The Dark Tower itself. First, we had Carrie, which was a sci-fi morality tale about bullying. Salem's Lot was a horror, yep, and The Shining was a horror as well, but both novels are horror stories that mean something. The first about the nature of small towns, and the second about the destructive forces of selfishness upon a family unit. The fourth book was Night Shift, a collection of short stories. The Stand was a post-apocalyptic fantasy. If we're categorizing Stephen King novels as movie genres, then this would be a big summer blockbuster. The Dead Zone was an intimate thriller. Firestarter was a sci-fi blockbuster about a father and daughter. Cujo was a claustrophobic thriller. And then we have The Dark Tower, which is all of the genres that I had just listed, and so much more. Stephen King has never been one to rest on his laurels. Each novel is a new challenge for him, and with The Dark Tower, he gives us his greatest challenge that spanned his entire writing career, whose conclusion almost forced him into retirement. In the context of his entire work, The Dark Tower series is like The Dark Tower itself, a linchpin holding all of his universes, worlds, and characters together. But the review for the final installment will come much, much later than today. Today, we'll talk about the one that started it all. Before I sat down to read the novel, I made the decision to stay away from fan sites and compendiums because, as I've said, so much has already been written about The Dark Tower, and I wanted this review to be my own. But with that said, I encourage everyone to go out and read Bev Vincent's The Dark Tower Companion and Robin Firth's The Dark Tower, The Complete Concordance. Together, both of these texts serve as the definitive, supplementary chronicle to King's magnum opus. Now, just to be clear, 
I'll be reviewing the original release, a paperback illustrated plume edition, and not the 2003 re-release. So for those of you who are unaware, just before Stephen King published the final three installments, uh, The Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, and The Dark Tower, he re-released The Gunslinger in June of 2003 in an attempt to smooth out the consistency. This included around 9,000 new words and the introduction to a concept that would play a large part in the final three novels. To discuss the changes made would mean that I would have to discuss the necessity for the changes, which would require me to spoil the events of later novels. Now, I'm going to talk about these things, but only after I get through the review of The Gunslinger itself. After I wrap up the episode and the music plays out at the end, I'm going to take a deep dive into spoiler country, where I'll discuss the revised and expanded edition, as well as how The Gunslinger fits into the series as a whole. Okay, everyone. Are you ready? We're about to get into this. But first... Let's start with the Wikipedia summary so I have a solid foundation upon which I can build my review. This tells the story of the gunsinger, Roland of Gilead, and his quest to catch the man in black, the first of many steps towards his ultimate destination, the Dark Tower. The main story takes place in a world that is somewhat familiar to the Old West, but exists in an alternate time frame or parallel universe to ours. Roland exists in a place where the world has moved on, the world has a few things in common with our own, however including memories of the song Hey Jude and the child's rhyme that begins Beans Beans the Musical Fruit. Vestiges of forgotten or skewered versions of real-world technology also appear, such as reference to a gas pump that is worshipped as a god named Amoko, and an abandoned way station with a water pump which is powered by an atomic slug. As Roland travels across the desert with his mule in search of the man in black, he encounters Brown, a farmer, and Zoltan, his crow, and Brown graciously offers to put Roland up for the night. While Roland is there, we learn of his time spent in Tull through a flashback. Tull was a small town which Roland came to not long before the start of the novel. The man in black had passed through the town previously, he brought a dead man back to life, and left a trap for Roland, the town itself. After Roland spends some time there, the leader of the local church reveals to him that the man in black has impregnated her and has turned her against Roland. She turns the entire town on Roland, men, women, and children. In order to escape with his life, Roland is forced to kill every resident in the town, including his lover, Allie. Telling this story seems cathartic for Roland. When he awakes the next day, his mule is dead, forcing him to proceed on foot. Before Roland leaves, Brown asks his permission to eat the mule. At the way station, Roland first encounters Jake Chambers, who died in his own universe, presumably our own, when he was pushed in front of a car while walking to school in Manhattan. Roland is nearly dead when he makes it to the way station, and Jake brings him water and jerky while he's recovering. Jake does not know how long he's been at the way station, nor does he know exactly how he got there. He hid when the man in black passed by the way station. Roland hypnotizes him to determine the details of his death, but makes him forget before he wakes since Jake's death was extremely violent and painful. Before they leave the way station, they encounter a demon in the cellar while looking for food. After their palaver, Roland snatches the jawbone from the skeleton in the hole, from which the demon speaks. After leaving the way station, Jake and Roland eventually make their way out of the desert into more welcoming lands. Roland rescues Jake from an encounter with a succubus who is an oracle, and then couples with the oracle himself in order to learn more about his fate and the path to the Dark Tower. Roland gives Jake the jawbone from the way station to focus on while he is gone. After Roland returns, Jake discards the jawbone. As Jake and Roland make their way closer to the mountain, Jake begins to fear what will become of him. 
In a flashback, we learn about Roland's chance encounter in a kitchen, which leads to the hanging of Hax, the cook. The apprentice gunslingers are allowed to witness the hanging with their father's permission. Roland reveals how he was tricked into calling out his teacher Court early through the treachery of Martin. He succeeded in defeating Court in battle through his ingenious weapon selection, his hawk, David. Jake and Roland make their way to the twisting tunnels below the mountain, propelled along by an ancient minecart. During the journey, they are attacked by the slow mutants, monstrous subterranean creatures. Roland fights the slow mutants off and they proceed. Eventually, they find the man in black, and as Jake dangles precariously from the tracks, Roland comes to a pivotal choice. Save Jake or pursue the man in black. Roland chooses to follow the man in black. Jake tells Roland whilst hanging, whilst, good choice whoever wrote this Wikipedia. So Jake uh, tells Roland whilst hanging, go then, there are other worlds than these. He lets go of the edge and falls without screaming. After sacrificing Jake in the mountains, Roland makes his way down to speak to the man in black. The man in black reads Roland's fate from a pack of cards, including the sailor, Jake, the prisoner, um, and I'm not going to read uh, this, because it, it, it tells you who these characters are going to be, and you're going to learn about them in, in the drawing of the three, so I don't want to get too much into spoiler countries here, but it reveals the prisoner, the lady of shadows, death, but not for Roland, and the tower itself as the center of everything. The man in black states that he's merely a pawn of Roland's true enemy, the one who now controls the tower itself. The man in black creates a representation of the universe, attempting to frighten Roland by showing him how things are truly insignificant um, in the grand scheme of things, and asks him to give up his quest. Roland refuses and is made to fall asleep by the man in black. When he wakes up, ten years have passed and there is a skeleton next to him, what he assumes to be the man in black. Roland then sits on the edge of the Western Sea, contemplating the three people he is now charged with bringing into all world, the Prisoner, the Lady of Shadows, and the Pusher. The Gunslinger, uh, the novel, really is is made up of five different stories uh, that were um, originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And so the way that I'm going to break down the this analysis and review, I'm going to look at each of the, the, the five different sections. So we're going to start with the Gunslinger, and then work our way into the Way Station, the Oracle in the Mountains, the Slow Mutants, and then finally the Gunslinger and the Dark Man. Uh, so we're going to begin with that, uh, that, that first part, the Gunslinger. So to start off, let's talk about the writing style. Um, the writing style is so different than what we've seen so far in a Stephen King work. It should come as no surprise that a story based on a poem should be imbued with a poetic style. In the first few pages, King establishes everything that we need to know about this world and this man. He's nameless, clearly inspired by the man with no name, portrayed by Clint Eastwood. As we get to know him, King will name him, but our first impression of him will always be Gunslinger. His title is his name and his identity. This first impression will help shape our understanding of him throughout the story. We will learn his name, his story, his tragedies, his triumphs, his faults, his vulnerabilities, and yet, it's hard to relate to him as a human being. He is, after all, the gunslinger. He is defined by his role, its responsibility, and the single-mindedness of his mission. In this case, it's find the man in black. The man in black will lead the way to the tower. This quest consumes identity, 
And as we'll see over the series, we'll see how his continuation of his quest is a testament to his resilience, as everything he's ever known or has ever loved is chewed up and swallowed mercilessly by his dedication to find the tower. The identity between the gunslinger and Roland Deschain will cause a terrific push-pull experience for the readers of the Dark Tower, pulling you in as you want to get to know him, pushing you away when you realize that you might not want to. The identities fight with one another, each battling for supremacy of Roland's self, much in the same way Batman and Bruce Wayne battle over the right to claim the true identity for the caped crusader. Speaking specifically of the events within this novel, we see the push-pull when Jake is first introduced. We see the hard edges soften, just enough to reveal that there could be a real person underneath. But by the events of the novel, it's clear that the gunslinger wins out over Roland, as Jake is sacrificed in the name of the tower. Now the opening line, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed, that classic, classic line. It suggests that the central conflict is between the gunslinger and the man in black, but make no mistake, the conflict is, and will always be, between Roland and himself. So from the get-go, King establishes the mythology of the series, and by this, I, I don't mean that he establishes the convoluted backstory as, as mythology is used in relation to popular entertainment these days, but in the truer sense of the word. Again, he's nameless. He is the gunslinger. He pursues the man in black, who we will later learn is named Walter in an unsatisfying reveal, partially because his mysterious quality is just now erased. At that moment, he suddenly becomes a person, when throughout the text, he was known simply as the Man in Black, a puzzle whose pieces were starting to add up to something powerful and universal. Through the brief glimpses and descriptions, King invokes connotations ranging from dark sorcerers to the devil himself. In this mythologized version, does his power reside? Similarly, the same is true for Roland, whose powers of Kef and his threat level truly shine when he is the gunslinger. With Jake's inclusion and the flashback to his own youth. The mythic stature is threatened, and he is humanized. In order to reclaim his power, he must sacrifice his humanity, symbolized by the boy, and in the process damns himself. But that damnation only serves to mythologize even more, as a story that will be told over and over and over again. Even the landscape itself is not just a setting. It's the basis for all deserts. All stories ever told were inspired by this. Touches like these skyrocket this novel into a class that Stephen King hasn't attempted outside of this series and lays the groundwork for uh, an exploration of the reality of fiction, which will be the crux of the series in the final three installments, but hinted at here even in its early incarnation. Every image in this is an epic story that, that just serves the thought of Roland as the mythologized figure, and that everything in this has importance on a universal, um, and when I, when I say universal, I, I should probably say multiversal scale. Just Roland under the stars by the greasy fire in the Mohane Desert, the lights of Tull flickering in the early evening along a coach road, the boy leaning against the way station, the zigzag of bodies along the streets of Tull, the circle stones in the shadow of the mountains, the demon in the walls of the old house, the subterranean railroad system beneath the mountains, the Golgotha, epic image after epic image. You know, these are universal like, imprints on the world, and everything that, that we know of the mysterious magician and the cowboy could come from this place, because that's how important Roland's story is. Now, in the opening, King gives us all that we need to know. We don't need to know of a nuclear war or the heights from which a civilization had fallen a millennium before. 
Instead, with well-chosen description, King creates the loneliness of this world. The highway, whose only traveler is the gunslinger and his prey. The fact that Roland's only relationship is between he and the man in black, a relationship built on intent to kill, its only form of communication coming from the taunting notes left behind by the object of his pursuit. He is without water, but his thirst gives him pleasure. He can sacrifice aspects of his health, but he will never do the same for his guns, which will never go dry even if he does. His identity is undefined, his clothes described as the no color of dust or rain. He is just a grain of dirt in an endless desert, a speck among the swirling universes above him. The desert is described as purgatorial waste. The only source of fire can drive you insane. It's a bleak world, and King is setting us up for a grim story. The first person the gunslinger meets is named Brown, implying that he too is of the never-ending desert. Even with human contact, there will be no break from this monotony. Now, in the teleplay Storm of the Century, written by King, the, de the demonic figure Andre Lenoge, who may or may not originate from this world, explains that hell is repetition. If that's the case, then this journey is a form of hell. Those that have finished the entire series will know that this concept takes on a whole different level of meaning. The idea of this hellish existence is reinforced in a conversation with Brown that, to me, is an example of the author showing his hand, so to speak. King is a naturalistic writer whose characters dictate to him where they will go and what they will say rather than the other way around. Now, in the conversation with Brown, I believe that King clumsily steers the direction because he was enamored with a particular line he had on his head that reinforces this thought of, of purgatory, of, of hell. And Roland um, asks, uh, do you think there's an afterlife? To which Brown replies, I think this is it. First, aside from the dead mule... Uh, the buildup does not really support such a weighted question. In a world this harsh, I, I just don't think a dead mule would, would cause anyone to ask a question like that, and I, I don't think Roland would care enough to ask Brown's opinion on the subject. Now, I'm not arguing the significance of Brown's answer, mind you, just that it's more clear that King wanted this exchange to occur and was less, less uh, deft than normal on hiding his ability to, uh, to create naturalistic dialogue. Now, look, um, just... Ju <laughs> Just so you guys all know, I'm only five pages into this book, and by this point I have seven pages of notes. So when I was taking this, the, the notes, I was like, I'm, I'm going to be recording for quite some time. So show, don't tell is the number one rule for writers to live by, and King builds the culture of this world by showing rather than telling. He shows us the various aspects of the world's culture with characters expressing such phrases as life for your crop without a narrator explaining the origins or the meaning of such phrases. And then we learn more of the pursuit between our mysterious star and his even more mysterious prey. And through the conversation with Brown, the reader is given confirmation that the man in black is a sorcerer whose mere presence affected Brown enough to force one side of a conversation without knowing it. Now I imagine the man in black used Brown the way that we use television, something to keep us entertained while we eat. The man in black is referred to by Roland um, as God due to his ability to, to bring back the dead. While this is only a snide remark by the gunslinger, it speaks of the reversal of order in this world, where once there was order is now chaos, and our hero, who walks, in King's words, a purgatorial wasteland, is the pursuer of a dark God who we assume will be killed. It makes sense, after all, because the gunslinger's quest is a holy one, the holiest, 
and King complicates the purity of such a quest by making it a violent one, with sacrifices to the tower and many gallons of blood spilled in its name. Is it the tower that commands these deaths, these sacrifices? Or is it the command of a man who claims to know the intent of the tower? Roland's single-mindedness is a form of religious zealotry, just as much as Margaret White's was, and as alien as this world can seem at times, the corruption of belief through the distortion of religion is something that can be seen in our own society even today. It's no coincidence that Roland encounters a madwoman gripped in the throes of zealotry when he arrives at Tull. Sylvia Pitson is, in a sense, a foil for Roland, and so similar to Margaret White is she, one can't help but think that if this woman had her child, it would have been born with telepathic abilities and a mistrust of social dances. Roland's tale of the death of Tull alludes to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and will be the first of a few tales told by one character to the next throughout the course of the series. While it's effective at invoking the English class classic, to me it just doesn't feel right. The, the story of, of Tull itself is gripping, but Roland's telling of it to a stranger doesn't feel authentic to the character I remember him being from the later books. In fact, I remember him being rather guarded, finally thawing once the bonds of his quartet begin to grow. There is a question of enchantment, but that's almost an easy cheat, as if King recognized that it didn't quite fit this character. Again, this feels more uh, as if the homage to the Canterbury Tales overpowered the, the organic flow of the novel. However, the tale itself begins with the inclusion of Hey Jude, which no doubt must have come as a, a shock to first-time readers at the time. You know, because at this point, we, we think that this is a... You know, I mean, I, I think that, that people reading it could just assume that this is uh, just a, a Western tale with like a little supernatural edge because there's a magician in it, right? But with this, we really start to get our first understanding that something strange is going on with this world. While he's in uh, Tull, uh, Roland calls the two boys dudes. Now, I, I don't know. I haven't read a lot of of Western literature. Well, I haven't read a lot of western books by which i mean you know like cowboys and stuff is this a common cowboy phrase i mean do we know if king omitted it during the re-release at all you know because i i i don't know if this is authentic or not but i i hope that he removed it because while he certainly doesn't mean to roland seems one question away from asking if there's any place around where he can catch a gnarly wave and again again you know King distorts our sense of reality that has been established with the gunslinger's arrival to Tall. I mean, up until now, um, so much of this story has been familiar, right? The mysterious gunfighter arriving to the small town, the dramatic entrance to a lively saloon. These are images that are firmly entrenched within our subconscious collective minds. Yet King continually reminds us that as similar as they may seem, so much of this is different. While a lonesome cowboy making his way through the land is not an original idea, having that cowboy hunt down a magician is. Inside the bar, it's not uncommon for its patrons to play a game of cards, but we expect poker, and instead are given Watch Me. Hearing honky-tonk tinkling out from a saloon's piano is a sound we've all heard in movies, televisions, and commercials. But having that song be Hey Jude results with the reader's disorientation. How can a song from our world exist here when our world is so much different from this? King continues to show, rather than to tell, what kind of man the gunslinger is. In a classic, classic badass Batman move, 
The thug approaches and our hero doesn't have to turn around. A simple word is enough to make the thug think twice before causing his own death. Furthermore, here in, in the saloon, we learn for the first time of, of high speech, which again reinforces the alien-like culture of this world. High speech um, in A Song of Ice and Fire would be referred to as High Valerian, right? So the inclusion of high speech doesn't just point out that despite all the similarities to our world, this can't be our world, but more importantly gives us a little shading to our character. Until this point, we know nothing of him, yet it's revealed that he understands high speech and hasn't heard it in years. A few things occur with this information. One, through its name, it's implied that high speech is a royal and formal way of speaking, a romance language of sorts. It's clearly stated that it's a language that the gunslinger is very familiar with, even to speak it fluently while everyone else is in the saloon can't understand what he and Nort are saying to each other. It's an interesting character moment. It speaks to what we will later learn is his nobility and his place within a fallen aristocracy, an interesting aspect to a character who until now has only been a cowboy archetype. With the fact that it is something that Roland hasn't heard lately, it again suggests that something has happened to this world. With Roland unsure how long he's heard it, centuries, millennium, King reinforces the concept of the world having moved on, a phrase meaning that the world has ended and with its dying throes is dragging time and physics with it. And then it, it also establishes that it is so forgotten in the world that it is completely unrecognizable to the townsfolk and it establishes just a, another shade of nuance to the world. The man in black's arrival to Tull speaks of the mythology that I had referenced before. He is so fearsome that his arrival in town is preceded by clouds that, as King describes, moved flyingly across the sky as if they had seen something horrifying in the desert wastes where they had so lately been. His arrival to Shebs demonstrates his magical nature. His mere presence affects the world around him, causing a dueling feeling of lust and mistrust within Ali, and commanding his presence without saying it, so all eyes are on him, he upon the stage, they within their seats. His resurrection of Nort is, is both surreal and strange. So rather than uh, a more godly laying of hands, he desecrates the body by repeatedly spitting on it and then jumping over it while a thunderstorm rages outside. They say that God has brought Nort back, and clearly we immediately think the opposite of that. But with this scene, the man in black has just as much in common, if not more so in common, with the trickster gods as he does with the devil. He turns Nort's resurrection into a dark joke, pulling him back from death, yes, but damning him to a life of addiction and misery. And then going back to uh, the mythology again, um, how these characters are just mythological beings, uh, Allie thinks of Roland uh, pretty much as, as a myth. You know, he, she, she, uh, she thinks that he was like something out of a fairy tale or myth, the last of his breed in a world that was writing the last page of its book, which is significant on so, so many number of, of levels there. Um, stick around, uh, those of you who have finished the Dark Tower series um, upon the conclusion of, of this review, because I'm going to get into to more concepts like that. But that is definitely a line that stuck out with me because of my understanding of the, the series as a whole. And then we feel the, the frayed edges of this world. Uh, I mean, Tull is a town uh, whose only world is Tull itself. 
an inbred community just too afraid or too apathetic to explore what's after the desert, you know, which could just be the end of the world for anybody new. And because this novel was so clearly inspired by the Sergio Leone movies, I, I think that it's apt to include a breakdown of the good, the bad, and the ugly aspects of this novel. Now, in this case, the bad and the ugly are one and the same, and they both involve Sylvia Pitson. Uh, so, um, Stephen King thought it was necessary to include a scene involving uh, the uninvited insertion of a gun barrel into a resisting woman. Is Sylvia crazy? Yeah. Is she probably carrying a demon? Yeah. Did our protagonist still rape a woman with a gun barrel? Yes. Yes, he did. As I've stated with other examples in King's works, I, I think that I just might be growing more sensitive the older I get, but I, I, I really can't get behind this scene. I understand that I'm not supposed to like it. That I get. In fact, it, I would say that it goes a long way to show the brutal lengths that Roland will go to achieve his goals. But the end of the, the chapter, I mean, he, he still raped a woman. It's an inversion, and I get that. She willingly accepted a relationship with the villain, but fights off the hero. It's just that I, I don't feel it adds anything to the narrative. I just think it's unnecessary. I think that any, mat any subject matter uh, can be explored if handled the right way. But in this case, it, it, this to me seems very exploitative, and I, I just wish that it wasn't included. Now, the end of Tull comes at the guns of Roland, a scene essential, illustrating his cold, instinctual ruthlessness. Possessed by the man in black, the townspeople are forced to attack the gunslinger, forcing him to slay a population of innocents. To the man in black, it's all a joke. To Roland, it's just life. It's not funny. It's not obscene. This is simply the state of his existence. The uh, massacre at Tull is, it might be one of, it's not the most essential scene in this novel, but it's one of the most essential scenes because we have to see the lengths that, that, that Roland is able to, um, not the lengths, but the, the, the depths that he's able to dive into in order to accomplish his mission, um, as well as in order to, to see just how skilled he is. At, at being a gunslinger and what that means. Uh, so he, he gives this incredible description of the, the townspeople attacking him and he just blasting them away. And it starts really <clears throat> on page 59. His reaction was automatic, instantaneous, inbred. He whirled on his heels while his hands pulled the guns from their holsters, the halves heavy and sure in his hands. But the hands were trained. He was the last of his breed, and it was not only his mouth that knew the high speech. His guns beat their heavy, atonal music into the air. He blasted his way through the middle of them, running as the bodies fell, his hands picking the targets with dreadful accuracy. Two men and a woman went down, and he ran through the hole they left. King continues the scene, uh, Roland just taking out one by one until they, they've left a... You know, this zigzagging pattern through the streets of Tull, leading to the only man left standing, Roland himself. And then uh, his thoughts of court, his, his old teacher, closed the first section of the book and serves to ease our way into the second section, the way station. I stated that earlier, uh, for much of the novel, he is nameless, defined by his title, the gunslinger. With the thought of court, he thinks of his own childhood, and here is where the granite image 
that we, we've seen so far begins to soften. After the inhuman act of the, the massacre at Tull, you know, he, he thinks of his own humanity, specifically his childhood. Then when he is most vulnerable, having just conjured the vulnerability of his youth, he discovers an actual child. It's a well-played series of events, and Jake arrives at the moment of Roland's most vulnerable time, caught partially lost in his own past, while the closest he's ever been to the tower, and caught between these polarizing extremes is the boy himself. King foreshadows Jake's ultimate demise in the moments before Roland reaches the way station. His water-starved mind is starting to lose its focus, and his thoughts drip like the blood from his hands. The blood was not thirsty, he writes. The blood was being served. The blood was being made sacrifice unto. Blood sacrifice. And the blood sacrifice is made tangible with the boy, Jake Chambers. Jake's inclusion to the narrative raises questions. Who is he? Roland instinctively knows that he isn't from this world, and the reveal that he is from our New York, one that is now set in the past, makes the novel even stranger than it already was. Immediately, they establish this, this great Batman and Robin relationship, Roland taking no pity on him, in short telling him to toughen up, and Jake willing to give it a try. You know, it, it's just, it's great. I mean, because it, it the relationship itself reinforces the fact that there's something between these two characters. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later. And and despite the fact that he doesn't take pity on him, he he does think of the unfairness uh, of, of Jake being in this world, and, and that in of itself speaks to his rekindling uh, humanity, which begins to grow as soon as he meets Jake. On page 78, King writes, The gunslinger ate another piece of the meat, chewing the salt out of it before swallowing. The boy had become part of it, and the gunslinger was convinced he told the truth. He had not asked for it. It was too bad. He himself, he had asked for it. But he had not asked for the game to become this dirty. He had not asked to be allowed to turn his guns on the unarmed populace of Tull. Had not asked to shoot Allie, her face marked by that strange, shining scar. And had not asked to be faced with a choice between the obsession of his duty and his quest and criminal amorality. The man in black had begun to pull bad strings in his desperation. If it was the man in black who had pulled this particular string, it was not fair to ring in innocent bystanders and make them speak lines they didn't understand on a strange stage. Allie, he thought, Allie at least, had been in the world in her own self-illusory way. But this boy? This goddamn boy. Jake tries to put the pieces of his memory together, and while Roland doesn't quite understand what these pieces add up to, we do. Uh, we learn very quickly that he died, and it throws another layer of weird onto this world. If he died, maybe Roland was right. Maybe this is the afterlife. If so, it's an afterlife with cowboys, magicians, the Beatles, saloons, baked beans jingle, a water well pump that runs on atomic slugs, mutated animals, and the ruins of futuristic civilizations. In the way station, Roland encounters a demon who burrows straight out of a horror novel into this strange blend of fantasy, western, and sci-fi. Typically, you'd think that a cowboy is ill-equipped to deal with demons, but here we learn that his guns aren't the only tool in his toolbox, and learn later on at the Oracle that he is more than up to the task. Again, Jake's inclusion isn't just to introduce a new character into the mix. He's a symbolically charged character, stirring up Roland's own humanity, 
and in turn is symbolized with the physical change to the landscape. Where Roland's solitary journey was set against a never-ending desert, a setting devoid of any life, now that he has a traveling companion, it should come as no surprise that evidence of grass and life begin to appear. By the time King explicitly tells us that Roland loves the boy, the setting is unsurprisingly a lush jungle. In short, the boy equals life. The world itself screams this to Roland, that this boy can save him, but Roland ultimately rejects the boy and symbolically the chance at life. He chooses, instead, using a term from the Dark Tower, char. The way station includes a, uh, a flashback to the gunslinger's youth, and this weird world gets that much weirder. We've started to grow accustomed to this pseudo-Western environment with shades of our own world, but with the flashback, we are given a good dose of European inspiration, specifically castles and knights, even direct references to King Arthur and Merlin. Since Jake's arrival, Roland's past begins to push through the years like the grass through the hard pan, King giving us snippets and names, court, Cuthbert, Eileen, Martin, until the greenery of his memories push forth entirely, carpeting the desert of his soul with a rich layer of fertile feelings and experiences populated with old friends, mentors, loves, and enemies. With the flashback, we are immersed fully in the world before it had moved on fully, and King does a remarkable job at establishing the customs of this world and the way of life for the gunslingers in training. We hear for the first time the famous phrase of contrition, I have forgotten the face of my father. And it is this scene, almost 100 pages into the novel, where Stephen King reveals the gunslinger's name. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Roland. As I stated earlier, the reveal of the name speaks of the symbolic softening of the character. Until now, he had run from his humanity. Now, with Jake by his side, his humanity is on display. And again, it is so frustrating to recognize this and watch Roland actively deny it rejecting Jake, rejecting life in favor of the death that comes with his single-minded pursuit of the Dark Tower. In the flashback, we see Roland's first sacrifice to the Tower, David the Hawk. It's a foreboding omen for Jake. It demonstrates Roland's ruthlessness. His introduction to the world as a gunslinger was one of sacrifice. It's all he's ever known. However, before that, we learn that despite his intense upbringing, he's still a boy, and was a boy without friends. Here, we are introduced to a character who will die in between pages of this saga, but whose ghost will accompany Roland every step of the journey. More than his father, more than his mother, more than Susan. Here, we meet his childhood friend Cuthbert, who is the yin to Roland's yang. He is the external manifestation of all the qualities that Roland was either not born with or suppresses. And it's, it's Cuthbert that makes Roland whole. The flashback reveals the betrayal of Hacks and his loyalty to the good man. This is a giant piece of Roland's history that is never truly explored in great depth. Here, Farson is referenced, but as a town, later to be reworked as a person, John Farson, the good man. He's a rebel, a revolutionary, a terrorist of sorts, who is fighting against the aristocracy of the world of the gunslingers. JFK is invoked, in a way, suggesting that the good man has all of his charisma, but none of his heart. In fact, the good man is reminiscent of Greg Stilson from The Dead Zone and Randall Flagg before him. I'll continue the Flagg farce and exploration later after the credits for those of you who have finished The Dark Tower. With the portrayal of Hacks, we learn that Roland has always understood death. King shows us his comfort at the gallows, understanding the significance of what will happen, 
his role in the events, juxtaposed against Cuthbert's resistance of it. Immediately following the hanging of Hax, a present-day Roland spots the Man in Black for the first time. Whereas Jake symbolizes life, the Man in Black is nothing but death. And so it's very intentional that we see the Man in Black immediately after Roland uh, has a flashback to his first experience with death. Um, and just stuck in the middle is, is poor Jake. And then with that, we, we, we move from the way station section to the Oracle in the Mountains. Earlier in the text, King had referred to Susan. Here we get a flashback that is uh, in some ways similar to the one we will see play out in Wizard and Glass, but not exactly. Again, this is the first entry for King into this world, so everything in this novel is a rough draft for Midworld, Allworld, Inworld, and Roland's backstory. And um, he later touches it up in the 2000 re-release to, to make it just a, a little bit more seamless. Now here is where the novel takes a definitive step into the world of fantasy, in which Jake is enticed to enter uh, into a ring that is for all intents and purposes Stonehenge. A similar structure will be seen later um, in the Stephen King short story N. Within the Standing Stones, Roland receives a prophecy. Just as the demon in the well had hinted at the drawing, so does the oracle. In fact, the oracle spells everything out. The boy is the gateway to the man in black. The man in black is the gateway to the three. The three are the way to the tower. On the mountain, Roland tells us and Jake about the tower. For the first time, we get an understanding of it. It's a power nexus in time. That because something has happened to it, something has happened to time. And we also learn that Roland is the last of his kind. On page 137 uh, of my edition, we get a, a description of Gilead, which isn't called Gilead here, um, but Gilead would be, what, the capital of, of New Canaan. Um, and and that, that's the land that Roland refers to as New Canaan. But uh, anyway, so we, we get a description of, of what it once was and what it has since become that I think speaks to... Uh, the, the life that he had once had to the life that he now lives. So the gunslinger smoked and thought of how it had been, the knights in the huge central hall, hundreds of richly clad figures moving through the slow, steady waltz steps or the faster light ripples of the pole cam, Eileen on his arm, her eyes brighter than the most precious gems, the light of the crystal enclosed electric lights making highlights in the newly done hair of the courtesans and their half-cynical amours. The hall had been huge, an island of light, whose age was beyond telling, as was the whole central place, which was made up of nearly a hundred stone castles. It had been twelve years since he had seen it, and I'm inserting myself, King later revises that. He just, he, he doesn't put a date to it, um, making it just seem like it's been forever. But in the original text, it's been, it was twelve years. So it had been twelve years since he had seen it, and leaving for the last time, Roland had ached as he turned his face away from it and began his first cast for the trail of the man in black. Even then, twelve years ago, the walls had fallen, weeds grew in the courtyards, bats roosted among the great beams of the central hall, and the galleries echoed with the soft swoop and whisper of swallows. The fields where court had taught them archery and gunnery and falconry were gone to hay and timothy and wild vines. In the huge and echoey kitchen where Hax had once held his own fuming and aromatic court, a grotesque colony of slow mutants nested, peering at him from the merciful darkness of pantries and shadowed pillars. The warm steam that had been filled with the pungent odors of roasting beef and pork 
had been transmuted to the clammy damp of moss, and huge white toadstools grew in corners where not even the slow muties dared to encamp. The huge oak subcellar bulkhead stood open, and the most poignant smell of all had issued from that, an odor that seemed to symbolize with a flat finality all of the hard facts of dissolution and decay, the high sharp odor of wine gone to vinegar. Had been no struggle to turn his face to the south and leave it behind, but had hurt his heart. Now the mountains themselves are steeped within fantasy tradition. The gunslinger and the boy continue the tradition of the Bagginses from The Hobbit um, and Lord of the Rings. Now on page 141 is where the end begins, Jake admitting that he knows the gunslinger will kill him, and first-time readers might balk at this because surely the main character cannot be responsible for the death of a boy. No, never! Um, but uh, Jake had reason to, to be wary here because Roland is not, not all that uh, he's cracked up to be, so to speak, in terms of, of goodness. And then to confirm his fears, the man in black appears, promising answers if Roland comes alone to the other end of the mountains. Roland is presented with an opportunity to get further to the tower, but at the price of his soul. King hints that Jake could make a fine gunslinger, an opportunity that he will not have in this novel, but one that King will make good at further down the line. And finally, at the conclusion of the chapter, Roland... Ex excuse me, I'm sorry. Nope, not Roland. Finally, at the conclusion of this chapter, the gunslinger shuts the door on Jake the person and begins to think of him simply as the boy in order to make the sacrifice um, hurt less and easier to, to, to do. And then we cut to the, uh, the slow mutants chapter. Now, underneath the mountains, the tension between uh, Jake and Roland grows in the darkness while the weight of Roland's decision rests upon his shoulders with the weight of the mountains themselves. In this chapter, Roland shows that despite his decision to kill Jake, he had let too much of his humanity come to the forefront. As a result, he feels discomfort and covers it with a, a tale of his youth in which we learn of Martin and Gabriel's affair. So Martin is his father's right-hand man, the, the, the advisor to the court, and uh, a magician. He's an enchanter. So basically, for all intents and purposes, he is the Merlin to, uh, to King Arthur. King Arthur, in this sense, being um, Roland's father, Stephen. Now... What happens is Roland, I'm sorry, Martin reveals the affair to Roland, setting off a string of events that would lead Roland to the deep places beneath the mountain in present time. Just as the man in black manipulated Roland into sacrificing Jake for the sake of the tower, Martin manipulates Roland to sacrifice his beloved David in the name of revenge. Both instances reveal that Roland, for all of his abilities and instinct, is thick-headed. Martin's plan here. What's his intention? Is it to push Roland to his rite of passage in the hopes he'd lose and be sent west with the other failed gunslingers, maybe to join up with the big coffin hunters? Or does he push Roland into it knowing that Roland will enter the world as a gunslinger not fully formed, believing sacrifice means victory? Is he playing a long game here that will allow Martin Broadcloak to continue his manipulations for centuries? Roland is successful in his trial against court, but really at what cost? What lessons did he never learn in the five years he would have if he continued to train under Court and Vinay? If he had waited, would he have come out of it a better man? A better gunslinger, who would have had a better ability for long-term thinking? Would a better Roland ever have damned himself? 
By setting Roland off, does Martin knowingly set him upon a path that will ultimately lead to his own damnation? The fight between Roland and Court is brutal, and David's fate does not bode well for Jake, who will refer to himself as a poker chip in the game between Roland and the man in black. Now, continuing what I was talking about earlier with the Bagginses from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, whereas Bilbo encountered Gollum under the mountains, Roland encounters slow mutants. The slow mutants are not unlike zombies with limited intelligence resulting from years of inbreeding and radiation mutation. After Roland disposes of them, he and Jake cross out of the horror genre and back into sci-fi where they enter a futuristic subterranean train station filled with skeletal corpses of a period long ago that ended, as Roland suggests, during a war in which gas was used for extermination. It's fitting that they should encounter corpses because soon after, Jake dies. His death is sudden, it's undramatic, and when given the choice, Roland literally jumps at the chance to get closer to the tower. Jake gives probably the most famous line from this book and plunges into darkness. Um, I just want to take a moment to talk about that line, okay? So the line itself is, go then, there are other worlds than these. Now earlier I had talked about seeing the hand of the writer. Um, you know, Roland earlier uh, you know, asked Brown if this was the afterlife. You know, like, you know, so whatever the exchange was, and I, I just felt like it it spoke more about Stephen King, the writer, than it did about Roland, the character. And as iconic as this line is, as great as this line is, and it's a great line, uh, for it to come from a boy's mouth, to me, is just inauthentic. Um, and I like it. I like the line. I just don't see it coming from, from Jake, from a child. It seems to me that um, King was enamored with it and felt the need to incorporate it, but... Here he seems to insert it uh, a little bit more clumsily than he usually does. Regardless, the end result is Jake, you know, he, he lets himself go and he plunges into the darkness. Um, one more sacrifice in the name of the tower. And then we're at the, the end of the novel, almost. We have one more chapter to go. It's the gunslinger and the dark man. So Roland receives his answers in the Golgotha, a place made entirely of skulls and bones, and this made me realize just how limited the artwork for the Dark Tower series is. Throughout the publication of each of the books, I mean, how many pictures have we gotten to see of Roland? It just, it, that, that's the bulk of it. It seems like that's all there is. Yet there's so much we've never seen in illustration, like the Golgotha. From the symbolic standpoint, the meeting place that is, is fitting as the bones represent all of the lives taken in the name of his quest and all of the lives yet to be taken. And I would love to see someone illustrate that. I would love someone to just illustrate the scenes in, in the Dark Tower that haven't been illustrated yet to just bring to life. And I know there's a lot of fan art there um, on, on the internet, on Tumblr, on Instagram, and, and I would just I would like to see more. The, the more that, that we can do as a community, I, I think that it will just, you know, it's a great way to give back to, to all of us. So the man in black then reads his fortune with the tarot cards, which tell him of what occurred and what will occur soon enough, namely, the drawing of the three. Roland is given a description of the beginning of the world, of the universe itself, and receives a glimpse of something that almost drives him insane, a primordial light. What does he see? He sees a blade of grass, which the man in black goes on to put into context with the philosophical musings on the nature and our inability to, to truly understand size. That this universe may exist between the atoms of an alien blade of grass has begun to dry up. 
which could explain the decay of the physics of this world. The philosophy supports two contradictory trains of thought. One, the insignificance of life, and two, the importance of all life. If a single blade of grass could contain an infinite number of universes, shouldn't we be careful of all things? Yet Roland, in his quest to find the tower so that he can save existence, is willing to murder everything that stands in his way. This contradiction is what makes the character and the series so interesting. The novel ends um, with, uh, with Roland um, continuing his journey, but failing to, to understand the, the complexities of, of what he's seen and what I had just talked about. And, um, you know, the fact that he so, so lately in life, after everything that he has seen, is still willing to sacrifice a child, he, he clearly doesn't understand the, the importance of all life, even though that's exactly what he's fighting for. All right, everyone. So what I want to get into now um, is look at the what I call the Stephen King isms, uh, just certain tropes that you we see from one Stephen King novel to the next, to the next, to the next. Uh, the first of which is the crazy religious woman. So we've seen this character first in Carrie with uh, Margaret White. We've seen her again in the Dead Zone. We will see her again in um, the Mist. So it's it's a particular trope that King likes to play with. The second one um, is an interesting. It's not just a, a Kingism. It's a it's a link between a couple books here, and basically the the Kingism is a character having objects dance over the knuckles um, in order to you know for like a like a magic trick. In this case, it's Roland using a shell to hypnotize Jake. We've seen it before from Randall Flagg in The Stand. And it makes one wonder where Roland learned this trick. Hmm. I wonder who he could have learned this trick from. Number three uh, is the importance of childhood friends. Um, we see it here with uh, with Roland and his friends, Jamie, and specifically, especially, Cuthbert. Uh, but, you know, we, we see it in It. We see it in The Body. We see it in Dreamcatcher. It's an important concept that, that King is really enamored with, um, that the friends that you make in childhood, there, there's something pure about it that that can be a part of you no matter where you go. And keeping in, in line with this, we have number four, which is the wise-talking supporting character. Here it's Cuthbert. In upcoming novels, uh, it's going to be Eddie Dean. And then in it, of course, we're going to see Richie Tozier. Um, but that that wisecracking character is definitely something that we're going to see again. Um, number five is the crazy politician. Here it's the the good man, uh, Jim Far, um, not Jim Far, John Farson. Um, and we've seen this character before with Randall Flagg, with Greg Stilson. We're going to see him later again with Buster Keaton from Needful Things and Big Jim Rennie from Under the Dome. And then lastly, we have uh, the, the man and child relationship, which is, which is huge. Um, and we saw it first in a prototype form between um, Ben Mears and, and Mark Petrie. Um, and it's the idea of the, the child being able to save the man. In this case, Roland rejected that concept, but isn't to say that he won't have another opportunity somewhere down the line. But, but that is something that, 
that King likes to play with. And from a symbolic standpoint, that's really what it is all about, about, you know, the, the child within all of us being able to, to save our adult selves. Okay, everybody. Um, I have a lot more to talk about in terms of the gunslinger and its relationship to the, the larger context of the Dark Tower. However, I'm not going to do it this week. Uh, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. This novel has brought us our very first two-part episode of the Stephen King cast. So next week um, is dedicated to those that have finished the Dark Tower entirely and want to hear a little bit more. Um, so I, I have to warn anyone that has only read the dark, I'm sorry, that has only read the gunslinger, um, or maybe has read other of the, the, the dark tower novels, but hasn't completed it. I do not encourage you to come back next week until you have finished, uh, the series entirely, because I'm going to dive very, very deeply into spoilers next week. And typically during, uh, an episode, after reading the the text, I like to just examine very quickly what I believe the most important excerpt from the text is, and I'm not going to do it this week um, because to talk about it would actually give away um, some spoilers for for the the rest of the series. So I will be sharing that that quote next week. So I'll be next week I'll be talking about how the Gunslinger fits into the Dark Tower series as a whole. I'm going to talk about the 2003 uh, re-release and the changes made, why the changes were made for good or for bad, um, and just talk about a, a lot of the things that I couldn't talk about during this week because I wanted to keep this review uh, as spoiler-free as possible. So thank you, everyone. And what I would like to do, if you're if you're listening to this and you haven't written in yet, please, please, um, I, I really love being able to share feedback um, and just your thoughts on Stephen King. And in this case, now that we're entering the world of the gunslinger and the Dark Tower, I know that you're out there. I know that you have thoughts. I know that you have theories. And I would love for this to be a forum for you to be able to share them. So please feel free to, to write in. And if there's anything in here that I missed or anything that you you, you disagree with, you know, do not hesitate to, to write so I can share it with, with everyone. So the email address is stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram, Stephen Kingcast. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, Stephen Kingcast, Tumblr, Stephen Kingcast, Pinterest, Stephen Kingcast, Twitter, Stephen Kingcast. Um, and, you know, feel free if you've enjoyed this to uh, write a review on iTunes, Stephen Kingcast. Uh, you know, so in, in the hopes that maybe the, the audience will start to grow. The more likes and the more reviews you get on, on iTunes bumps it up. Um, and I would just, I would like, like I've talked about for the, the cultural conversation to start to grow a little bit more around Stephen King. So thank you all for listening. Don't forget to come back next week. Those of you that have finished The Dark Tower so we can get into even more conversation. Don't forget to write in StephenKingCast.com. And uh, until next week, have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you again here one week from today. Same King time, same King channel. Stephen King cast. Dark 
tower stands Oh, there must be a sacrifice Gone slanging man Oh, in a red rose field A dark tower stands Oh, there must be a sacrifice Gone slinging man